be looking this morning at chapters 40 and 41, but for our reading, I want to read chapter 41, verses 50 through 52, Genesis chapter 41, verses 50 through 52, give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of mine affliction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for this, your word. We thank you for preserving it for us and passing it down through the ages that we might have it this morning. It's been read in a language that is common to us, a language that we understand. But we come to you now and ask you for more than physical understanding. God, we come to you and ask you to give us spiritual understanding. Would you open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things? Would you teach us and train us, correct us, yes, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake? Make us more like Jesus. God, be with your people. Bless them. Holy Spirit, would you attend to the preaching? Apply it to the hearts of your children. And Father, would you help me, your servant? Would you protect me? from error, and would you be pleased and honored with every word and every thought. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Of all the beautiful flowers, of all the beautiful flowers with which God has created and arrayed his world, there is one, one that although it is very small, It is full of big, huge significance. Usually blue or white in color, this flower gets its official name from its appearance, from how it looks. It's called myosotis, which is a Greek word that is literally translated as mouse ear. But this is not what people usually call it. To get its common name, we have to turn to legend. And while there are many legends surrounding the name of this flower, there is one that has been the most enduring. It tells of a a young couple, a young couple in love, walking together along the shores of the Danube River in Germany, seeing a small, beautiful flower growing on the opposite bank of the river, and how much his girl adored those flowers. The young suitor jumped in. He swam across the river and fetched her a bouquet of these flowers. But as he tried to return, a fierce current grabbed him. And before he was swept away unto his death, he tossed the flowers to her and he cried out, 
forget me not. Forget me not. If you've heard of that flower, that's one of the legends for how it got its name. It is said that that woman wore a crown of these little forget-me-nots upon her head all the days of her life as a reminder of her first love. That phrase, forget-me-not, and its friend, linguistically, remember-me, forget-me-not, remember-me, those phrases are important components of our text this morning. Genesis chapters 40 and 41. And not only are they important for the story that is unfolding in the life of Joseph, but they're also important in the unfolding story of our lives, your life and my life as well. For if there's something that we share in common with Joseph, it surely is a deep need to remember, to remember God's steadfast love and God's enduring faithfulness to us, especially, especially when the stories of our lives are not going the way we hoped they would. When we look at the script of our life and go, something's not right. We left off Joseph's story last week with his continued unjust suffering. You may remember that he's been falsely accused of inappropriate conduct by Potiphar's wife. And as a result, Joseph has been thrown into prison, a place where he surely found himself tempted to think that God had forgotten him there. But as we learned in our study last week in the text, in that clear, repeated affirmation, right? We learned that that was not the case. Because remember, the text told us many times, God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God had not abandoned Joseph. In fact, God continued to be with Joseph, even there. Put your eyes on chapter 39, verse 23. What does it say at the end? God was with him and he made whatever he did to succeed. God was with Joseph even there in that pit. So I want to begin today in our study of these texts by recounting, recounting the continuing story of Joseph in chapters 40 and 41. And by recounting his story, we'll be well-equipped I believe we'll be well equipped for the lessons and the application that follow from it. So if you look at your text, chapter 40, chapter 40 begins by giving an account of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's anger with two of his officers, his chief cupbearer and his chief baker. He's angry with them. So angry was Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that he had these two men thrown in to prison, to the exact same prison where Joseph is being held. And given Joseph's favored status and how he was successful in all that he had done, Joseph was naturally assigned to attend to these two officers. In chapter 40, verses 5 through 19, it goes on to tell us about dreams 
dreams that these two officers had one night. You can see that the cupbearer recalls his dream, that in his dream, he sees a vine with three branches, and from these three branches come forth clusters of grapes. And then with Pharaoh's cup in his hand, in his dream, he sees that he presses those grapes into it, and he gives it to Pharaoh to drink. Joseph then interprets the dream, and he interprets it in a favorable way telling him that the three branches represent three days. And in three days, Pharaoh will lift him out of the prison and Pharaoh will restore him to office. And then put your eyes on verses 14 and 15. Look at how Joseph responds to him. Only remember me. Remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Remember me. I'm in the pit. Hearing this good news of the cupbearer, right? The baker steps forward. The baker steps forward and recalls his dream to Joseph. And in his dream, he says, I see three cake baskets. And these three cake baskets are upon my head. And in the uppermost basket, there's all sorts of food that was made for Pharaoh. But birds were on it. And birds were eating the food in that basket. Joseph then goes on to interpret his dream, but it is not favorable. He tells him, that in three days, Pharaoh will also lift him out of the prison, but instead of being restored to office, he will be hanged. And then he tells him that birds will eat the flesh from him. So let's pick up the story in verses 20 through 23 to see what happens next. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He's restored, things go well, and he forgets. Look at the first four words in your ESV of chapter 41. After two whole years. Two years! Two years. Two years, that's a long time. Can you imagine footsteps coming into the prison? Did he remember me? Is this the time when I finally get to go? <gasps> Maybe it's this time. Two years. Two years of waiting. Verses one through eight of chapter 41 tell us now of another set of dreams. Dreams come in twos here in this account. Another set of dreams. This time they're dreams that are had by Pharaoh. 
It tells us about his dreams in verses one through eight. I'll summarize. In one dream, he sees uh, seven attractive and, and fat cows being devoured by seven ugly and thin cows. And in the other dream, he sees seven ears of good grain being swallowed up by seven ears of bad grain. And troubled in his spirit, Pharaoh did what was very common in that day. Dream interpretation was good business, right? So he did what was common for those who had had a dream. He, he calls together all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. He calls them all together to interpret the dream for him. And none were found who could interpret it. Maybe they were too scared to tell him the truth. But no one gave him an interpretation. And it's now. Two years later, in verse 9, that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Let's look together at verses 9 through 14 of chapter 41. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, now it's time. Those footsteps that arrived were for Joseph. He's gonna go up here before the king of Egypt. Clean yourself up, shave, get changed. You're going to see the king. Pharaoh goes on and tells his dreams to this Hebrew boy, Joseph, who then interprets their meaning. Joseph tells him, Egypt will experience seven years of unprecedented harvest. More grain than you know what to do with. Followed by seven years of crippling famine. In light of this, Joseph goes on, becomes an economic advisor, right? He goes on to further instruct Pharaoh that what he should do is appoint someone over the land of Egypt and they should be responsible for collecting one-fifth of this as a tax, right? Take one-fifth of all this extra harvest and, and put it aside into storehouses and store it up so that way when the time of famine comes, there will be plenty available for everyone to have. Great plan. Bold tell Pharaoh what to do. Verses 37 through 45 detail Pharaoh's response. His selection of Joseph to this post. Who is there that can do this? This man selects Joseph to this post. And it details for us in verses 37 through 45, the rise to power. Talk about coming up out of the pit, out of the prison, to the very top. This is incredible. What happens to Joseph is incredible. This once despised, remember when we first met him, he's 17 years old. It's 13 years later. This once despised 17-year-old boy 
This despised brother with a rejected future is now 30 years old and he finds himself once again as the favored son, this time a pharaoh. And he finds himself once again clothed in glory, this time with the fine garments and gold chains and rings of Egypt. And then look at verse 43. The boy who once dreamed of his family bowing down to him now has an entire nation of people also bowing down to him. In fact, the text tells us that the only person more powerful than him in all of Egypt is Pharaoh himself. Even more, Joseph is given a new name. We're told that his new name is Zaphonath Panea which means God lives in seas. And he's also given a wife, Asenath, the daughter of a priest. I want us to look at one more set of verses here together. Verses 53 through 57 there at the end of 41. Fifty-three through 57. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the lands of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph becomes a blessing to the nations. Joseph becomes a blessing to the nations, a sure sign of, of God's promise to Abraham as well as a sign of things to come. I know most of you know the rest of the story, but stay here. It was a sign of things to come. So having now went through the narrative and recounted Joseph's story in these two chapters, what I want to do now is I want to move on to make some remarks. We've recounted the story. Now I want to make some remarks about significant moments in this story. Significant moments that remind us of God's enduring faithfulness and his steadfast Love. And the first one, the first significant moment comes in chapter 40. It comes back there when Joseph does what we so often, what I so often fail to do in the midst of suffering. Joseph faithfully cares for others. In the midst of his own suffering, he faithfully cares for for others. Think about it. Joseph has every reason to turn inward upon himself there in that prison. I mean, if anyone has a rightful claim to self-centeredness, it's Joseph. His life up to this point has been marked by unjust suffering. Think about it. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's been sold into slavery. And now he's serving in a prison because of false charges against him. And he's not just serving there. He's serving others, even other dreamers. Didn't Joseph have his own dreams? 
Had he not seen his whole family bowing down to him? What use would Joseph have with others' dreams when his own dreams have been shattered? Why does he so faithfully care for others when he has every human reason to not care at all? What can explain that? There's really only one explanation, right? It's the awareness of God's blessing upon him. He knows that God is with him. He knows that God is with him. Such awareness left Joseph looking for opportunities to serve those around him and even direct them to God. For Joseph, those simple words seen so often back in chapter 39, remember those words, God was with him. For Joseph, these words were not just words. It was a game-changing reality. It was a truth for him that he not only knew in his head, but he experienced it in marvelous ways. His faith and his love in the midst of his suffering reveals something profound about his heart especially in contrast to my own. You see, instead of believing that the world existed to serve him by fulfilling all his own dreams and desires, he actually found comfort in God's presence. Joseph didn't turn inward upon himself. Instead, he turned outward toward others. He's investing in the dreams of other people looking out for their good, even when his own dreams are shattered. So let me ask you this. Is this true in your suffering? Is this true in our suffering? Are we so easily jaded by our circumstances and and by our suffering that we forget God's good purposes in our suffering Do we fail to fully embrace God's steadfast love and embrace his enduring faithfulness in our own trials? Do we we not do that? And when we fail to see that our trials might actually be part of God's plan for us to bless other people. How many times have you been walking through a trial and suffering and before you know it, God puts someone in your path who's experiencing the same thing and God is saying to you, I put you here, you're going through this so that you can be a blessing to others. I had a mentor would always say, how consumed are we with me? How consumed are we with me instead of them? You see, we're being led here to see that we're to look outward in our suffering, how we might be a blessing to others. The second significant moment actually comes in a series of statements. You might say a series of moments made in both of these chapters. You see it first in chapter 40, verse 8, where Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? And if you turn over to chapter 41, verse 16, he says, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And again, in 41.25 and 41.28, the same thing is repeated. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And then in verse 32, he says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. 
I want you to know that this kind of language requires exceptional boldness from Joseph. Even if he didn't know before, he's been in Egypt long enough to know that Pharaoh is not only the king of Egypt, he's the embodiment of a god. Pharaoh is considered by the people to be a god himself. He's the supreme authority over all the land. No one, no other god is more powerful, right? On earth. I am all power. Shocking that he would say this. Even more shocking, look at verses 37 through 40 of chapter 41. The proposal that Joseph brought before Pharaoh pleased him and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. What a response. Shocking response. Joseph displays an incredible confidence in God in this situation. Even after so much suffering and so many disappointments, now facing the prospect of finally being delivered from prison. Put yourself in Joseph's sandals again here. he's He's about to get out of prison, right? Just interpret the dream and move on. He finds no place to take the easier path and promote himself, does he? He doesn't go up there and go, look at me. Look at what I can do. I have this amazing gift, and it's my ticket to freedom. I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to stroll right back home. He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do it? Because his trust remained in the God who was present with him. Not only there in the prison, but there in front of Pharaoh. Joseph is anchored in the steadfast love and the enduring presence of his God, so much so that he refuses to give glory to himself. Or worse, waste an opportunity to direct others to give glory to the one whom all glory is due. So let me ask you, let me ask myself, do we have such a confidence Do we have that kind of confidence? When we're faced with similar opportunities, do we speak or do we say just enough to be able to move on and then stay silent about our faith? Sometimes I wonder, do I just forget God's role in the equation? Do I just only think about me? Perhaps you as well. Perhaps we we fail to believe that God may just be at work in the hearts and minds of others around us. We forget that. That part of the reason we are there is because he very well may be at work in their hearts and minds. And he's calling us to be faithful mouthpieces for him. I guess the big question to ask is, do we fear more what man can do to us? than desiring what God is calling us to do. The third and last, there's many I could point to, but the third and last significant moment comes in chapter 41, verses 51 and 52, which we read at the very beginning, where Joseph names his two sons. 
Manasseh, and Ephraim. These names are most certainly significant, so much so that Joseph indicates that they point, as names typically do, they they point to God's work in his own life. Essentially, by naming his sons this, Joseph is saying, God has made me forget, and God has made me fruitful. God has made me forget, Manasseh. God has made me fruitful, Ephraim. It's quite easy to understand why he names the one fruitful. There's a lot of fruit coming out of this now, isn't there? That one makes a lot of sense, but why call the first one forgetful? Why call the first child forgetful? We can understand why Joseph, right, if he just wanted to forget his own sufferings, that would make sense, right? If he just wants to forget it, okay, but doesn't naming your own son this way betray such a forgetfulness? I mean, aren't names given so that we'll remember them and say them over and over again, especially as a parent, right? How many times do you say your kid's name over and over again, right? By calling his son Manasseh, isn't he actually assured the perpetual remembrance of his declaration of forgetting? How does that work? How can you constantly remember that you've forgotten something? Those are good questions but I think they might miss the point. You see, we often just want to wipe away the remembrance of our own suffering. We've bought the lie that we're happier and more satisfied when we just block our suffering out altogether. But when we do that, we actually wipe away some of the significance of our suffering as well. I'll put it this way in and naming his son Manasseh. Joseph is not just remembering, but he's reshaping the significance of his past suffering. And he's doing it by putting it into the context of what God is doing right then and right there in his life. Joseph would never forget the hardships he had faced, whether in his own family's house in Egypt, right? In his own family's house or in Egypt, He's not going to forget that, but he would remember those hardships when he looked at his son Manasseh and when he called that name Manasseh, he would remember those hardships through the lens of God's steadfast love and God's enduring faithfulness and how God ultimately brought him through that suffering and into prosperous fruitfulness, fruitfulness aptly testified to in the name of his second son, Ephraim. God has caused me to forget and God has made me fruitful. I don't want you to miss the significance of this moment. Don't miss the significance of this, not only for Joseph, but also for us. You see, it's often in the land of suffering, in the land of Egypt, in the land of our own afflictions, that the Lord makes us most fruitful. He makes us most fruitful there, not only in our lives, but in the lives of others. Pastor Ian Duguid, he illustrates this point quite effectively, I think. Let me read to you what he says. He says that we typically want God to make us into fine decorative china plates, which sit comfortably in a glass cabinet being admired by everyone. 
He goes on and says, instead, God makes us into serviceable water pitchers. Water pitchers that get chipped and scratched and dented through repeated use. He goes on, that is how our sufferings produce endurance. That's how our sufferings produce character. That's how our sufferings produce hope in us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. He finishes by saying it is also how God makes us useful to others around us, to those who have their own suffering and their own difficulties to endure as well. As God pours out from us to others. So now we come to a close. As we come to a close, I want to call you from significant moments in the story of Genesis chapters 40 and 41 to, not surprisingly, the most significant moment in all of history for all of us, to that moment when the steadfast love and enduring faithfulness of God was shown most brilliantly in the death of his son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, there on the cross at Calvary. We heard Joseph's plea, did we not, to be remembered? We heard his own personal commitment to remember. As moving as that may be, we must ultimately find comfort Not in being like Joseph, we must find our comfort in the truth that God has remembered us, that God has remembered us, and he did so by taking on all of our suffering. God took on all of our disappointments. God took all of our shattered dreams upon himself, and he did it as the Lord Jesus took all of it on himself there on the cross. Jesus did not wear a crown of forget-me-not flowers upon his head as a pledge of his love for us. That's not the crown he wore. He wore a crown of thorns upon his head as the king that not only knows our sufferings, but who suffered there in our place. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to call you to remember your Savior. Remember his steadfast love and his enduring faithfulness to you. I'll say it again. I've said it for two weeks now. It'll probably be every week in this series. God is with you. He is faithful to you right here and right now. He always is faithful and he always will be faithful. I want to call you to remember him as you turn outward from yourselves. Even in your sufferings, and I know many of you are suffering, remember him as you turn outward from yourselves and toward others, as you serve Jesus by loving others just as he has loved and served you. I wanna call you to remember him as you stand for him in difficult and trying circumstances. I wanna encourage you to put your unwavering boldness in him as his spirit leads and empowers you to give him glory, to give him glory while pointing others to join you in doing the same, even if the consequences may be harsh, but to point to Jesus. Remember Jesus and do not fear what man can do to you. I want you to remember 
your Savior's sufferings, even in your own suffering. I want you to run with full force. Put your head down and run in full force into his steadfast love and into his faithfulness. People like to say, lean into it. I say, run into it. Crash into it. Because you have a soft landing there. You have a soft landing. Feel the comforting impact of his goodness to you as he continues to work in and through you to produce an endurance that leads to gospel fruitfulness. And I want you to remember him as we come to the table. We come to the table most weeks here at the chapel. And one of the things that we do is we remember the price that had to be paid for us to be set free from our sins. That Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, would come leaving the glories of heaven and he would live for us and he would die for us and he would rise again for us in triumph. That there on the cross, he who knew no sin would become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To remember that Jesus died for you. Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletins?